Hey everybody, Magnus here. Anybody else ever think life would be so much easier if you were part of a Swedish barbershop ensemble? Or is it just me? Am I all alone here? Hello? Is, is this thing on? your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, TV shows, fine wine, power tools, exotic cars, and pocket lint. Today's topic is 1992's Batman Returns. You see, I think people have pissed on Batman Returns way too often. This is one of the most picked on Batman movies there's ever been, and so it'll be my pleasure to break down exactly why it's a lot better than it gets credit for. If any of this surprises you, just remember that I'm the same guy who defended both of Joel Schumacher's Batman films, so anyway. When Tim Burton's first Batman film debuted in 1989, a sequel was all but a foregone conclusion. Never crossed anybody's mind that a new Batman movie wouldn't come along sooner or later. For his part, though, Burton was a little sketchy about doing a sequel, so Warner Brothers offered him big-time creative freedom in exchange for doing it. And I guess he found it enticing because he eventually agreed to do the movie. From here, it's a little bit he said, she said as to what happened next, but Burton swears on a stack of Bibles that he didn't even want the Penguin in the movie, but Warner Brothers insisted. The reason that's a little hard to believe is because, what, Burton's creative freedom stopped short of being able to pick and choose which characters he wanted to work with? Tough to know for sure what the fuck happened here, but there you have it. In any case, the final movie was a critical and financial success. Yes, it was successful. There's this big myth out there that Batman Forever was somehow the runaway hit that Batman Returns just wasn't, and somehow Batman Forever earned oodles more box office profit than Batman Returns. So, here's some quick trivia for you. The bottom line of Batman Forever, as a film, was higher than the bottom line of Batman Returns. That much is true. In fact, it earned about 20 million more in the United States than Batman Returns did. 
However, Batman Forever cost $20 million more to make, so the imaginary increase in profit margin is mostly an illusion. What Batman Forever did better than Batman Returns was the marketing and commercial aspect. Batman Forever action figures were just easier to market than Batman Returns action figures. Whether that's a good thing or, a, or not isn't even my point. What matters here is that as films, one wasn't drastically more or less successful than the other in terms of box office profit dollars. That's all I'm saying. As I say, critics adored Batman Returns, but the consensus opinion seems to be that the movie royally pissed off parent groups who thought it was way too dark. Now, I have to call shenanigans on the whole thing because people, I was alive back in the summer of 1992. I remember how things went down. The movie was accepted by most people that I knew. They didn't think too much about the content of it one way or the other. By and large, it was thought of in the same way as a lot of sequels were thought of back in those days. By which I mean it was, it was generally considered to be good, but nothing touches the original. That's how most people viewed Batman Returns around the time it was released. The closest thing to controversy that I can remember is my dad being creeped out by the S&M imagery in the film after he and I saw it together on opening day. That's about it. Now, that's not to say that you didn't see talking heads and news and entertainment media sensationalize how some people responded to the film. I remember seeing that shit myself, but I never encountered, and I never met anybody who encountered it. I We only saw it on TV, but that was, no one seemed to give a shit, is basically what I'm saying. And people, nothing's changed with news media in the past 20 years. They sensationalize stories to boost ratings. It's what they did back then, it's what they do right now. This whole bullshit about there being almost riots in the streets over this movie is just not true. As somebody who lived through this thing and kept a very close eye on it, the most I'm willing to say is that the media blew minor discontent with the film way the fuck out of proportion. If you have other information, by which I mean something that doesn't come from motherfucking entertainment tonight, or some such, let me know, trentismagnus at gmail.com, but I just don't think that the revisionist bullshit that's popped up around this movie is what happened at all. So I guess, you know, to summarize this part of the deal, Batman Returns, you know, critical success, it was a financial success, and while there may have been some controversy to it, I've seen jack shit to convince me that it was much more than a tempest in a tea kettle. Sorry, I just wanted to get all of that idiotic bullshit out of the way up front. So, as for me, 
I was on pins and needles waiting for Batman Returns to come along. I only got to see it one time in theaters, but I, I had mixed reactions to it. Then as now, my ideal Batman movie would involve Batman beating the shit out of a lot of people. There's some of that in Batman Returns, but not enough for my inner 11-year-old. At the time, if you had made a Batman movie that was literally just scene after scene after scene of nothing but him kicking the shit out of everybody, I would have felt like I'd gotten my money's worth after I came out. That's... I, I, I dare not exaggerate saying that's pretty much how I felt. But in the main, I enjoyed the movie and liked how it didn't wrap everything up neatly at the end. Some of the best Batman stories out there are somewhat hollow victories where Batman won the day, sure, but a price was paid for it. And that's pretty much how things went in Batman Returns. Sure, Batman had taken taken out the Penguin, the Red Triangle Circus gang, they were, they were down for the count, but his reputation with the Gotham police was smithereens, and he'd lost Selina, possibly forever. As a kid, that's what I responded to, and a lot of ways, I like those same things even today. But these days, I also enjoy the matte, the, uh, matte paintings and the production design, all the stuff that I took kind of for granted when I was a kid. Now, I don't want to sound too much like an old fart, but I love the matte paintings that Burton used in the movie, and I also love how he uses them. I love the tone and the atmosphere of the movie, that the entire film is a gothic, claustrophobic nightmare. When I come right down to it, there's really not very much about Batman Returns that that doesn't work for me. In fact, when I think back on it now, Batman Returns ended up providing actually one of the very few bright spots later that summer. See, basically my family took a trip to Colorado. The idea was this would be the vacation we'd all remember for years to come. And it is, but not for very good reasons. When we left, my dad forgot to load up the fishing equipment. We were over halfway to Colorado before we realized it. While we were in Colorado, there was some kind of a bug going around and my dad got sick with something or other and was bedridden for a few days. On top of all that, the TV at the lodge that we were staying at absolutely sucked because mostly all we could get was a station that was doing a marathon of Peyton Place on their little satellite dish thingy. Keep in mind, guys, this was 1992, all right? What did everybody want to watch during the summer of 1992? If you said the Summer Olympics, ding, 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 you get the prize. Nobody gives a shit about Peyton Place. 
Especially not in the summer of 1992 when the Olympics were on. Anyway. On the way back home, it was like a fucking sitcom. My mom said, Well, nothing else can go wrong now. After which one of the tires had a blowout. The spare tire was buried under everybody's stuff, so we had to completely unpack the car, fish out the spare tire, change it, dump the old tire in there, put all our stuff back in, and get back on the road. My God, this was the vacation from hell. Anyway. But as I say, the one bright spot of that entire mess was a rare time when something else could be received on the satellite thingy. Some music channel or another was showing music videos, of which one was Susie and the Banshees' face-to-face video from the Batman Returns film score. The video was chock-full of clips from the movie, which at the time I'd only seen the once, so that alone made it all worthwhile. But let's face it, Susie Sue was banging hot in that goth chick kind of way, and that didn't hurt either. So. Anyway, so that's all the background stuff. I've blabbered on here quite a lot, so I'm going to take a break, play some promos, and I'll be right back. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I f- hate baseball. So there you go. Um, first f bomb of the show. Um, How did you not... beat me to the first f bomb of the show? Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America. Fridays at Two True Freaks. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just 
that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. All right, so the movie was fairly well regarded at the time it came out, if not quite as universally loved as the first Batman movie was. And it certainly didn't lend itself to the level of merchandising and tie-ins that Warner Brothers might have wanted. In the past 10 years or so, however, it's become even more trendy to bash on the movie. One common dipshit remark some people make is, it's a good film, it's just not a good Batman film. Now, apart from being pretentious as all fuck, it almost suggests that making a Batman film is somehow different than making any other kind of film. I mean, what, is it like the fucking Special Olympics here, guy? Explain yourself. I mean, I've never known what to think of that idiotic line, but you hear it all the time. That fat fuck from... Uh, ain't it cool news Harry Knowles he says shit like that all the time and I just don't get it but whatever with the coming of the Nolan movies picking on Tim Burton in general and Batman Returns in particular became a pretty trendy thing to do now I don't know about the rest of you but I don't need some hipster fuckpole who's read a whopping four trade paperbacks telling me what is and isn't really Batman if your experience with Batman starts and ends with Chris Nolan, Frank Miller, and Jeff Loeb, get out of my fucking face! In, in both of his films, Tim Burton adapted comics that apparently the majority of his critics have never read. As far as Batman himself is concerned, the biggest influence I can identify is Detective Comics number 27 through 37. The first year-ish of... Bob Kane and Bill Finger's Golden Age Batman. The similarities are too numerous to be recounted here. And hell, I'd argue that part of the first Batman film is a, is it's it's a kind of loose adaptation of Detective Comics number 27, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. But to kind of further my case, this is a Batman who's willing to kill his opponents. Not necessarily as his first resort, but it ain't off the table either. Like it or not, Batman stacked up a pretty impressive body count in the first several issues of Detective Comics and in his own title. That fact bothers a lot of fans even now. The fact that Burton showed Batman killing anybody is usually seen as crossing the line. Now, 
This isn't the big deal it used to be. Now that Nolan's Batman has notched up a body count of his own in his own films, but it is something you still occasionally see. At the same time, though, how many people did Batman really kill in the, Bur in, in the Burton films? Until he learned that the Joker and Jack Napier were one and the same, we never see Batman kill anybody in the 1989 movie. And even when he blows up the chemical factory, we don't see any bodies. He may not have killed anybody at the, in, in that sequence. Now, that may not be for lack of trying, but it's, ar it, it's arguable and unknowable. In the parade, it's suggested that he may have shot some of the Joker's henchmen, but it's not explicit. And it's also not certain that they died. In the showdown, in the cathedral, the only character Batman seemed to kill intentionally is the big, strong, black ninja dude who jumped out at him. And even then, you could argue that it was a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense. You see, Batman was all chewed up and bloody from the, uh, the Batwing crash in front of the, the uh, cathedral. And if nothing else, he needed to rescue Vicky from the Joker. The strong dude was in the way of all that, and he probably would have beaten Batman to death unless Batman took him down. Permanently. As to the Joker himself, I think it's arguable that Batman even meant to kill him, no matter, no matter that he threatened to do so. I mean, if the Joker had let go of the helicopter ladder, he would have just hung off the side of the building and then he could have been arrested. The Joker was the architect of his own demise. The best you could argue is that Batman's guilty of manslaughter in this case. And those are the only kills we know about for sure in the 1989 movie. Now, yeah, at the beginning of the film, some lowlife on the roof suggests that Batman killed Johnny Gobbs, but that's obviously uh, open for debate because... The other lowlife says that Johnny Gobbs could have been death by misadventure. We don't know for sure what really happened there. So, there's really only one out-and-out out intentional killing in Batman 89, and even that was self-defense. At the top of Batman Returns, again, it's not immediately clear that Batman killed anybody during the circus gang's assault on the tree lighting ceremony. The flame breather might not have died. Hell, he might not have even been too seriously injured. He could have just rolled around in the snow. Stop, drop, and roll. The next death that people bitch and complain about is Batman stuffing a bomb down the circus strongman's pants. But the explosion that took place right after looks more like a confetti bomb than, well, I don't know, dynamite? Now, I'm sure it hurt like a bastard, but I don't think that's fatal. As to the penguin, again, that wasn't intentional on Batman's part. Now, Batman made no effort to save the penguin, but if you can excuse Batman's lack of action in Batman Begins, 
Surely Batman idly standing by and letting the Penguin do himself in and Batman Returns isn't too much for you. At least in Batman Returns, Batman had no way of knowing the Penguin would even die. But only an idiot would think Ra's al, al Qui-Gon would have survived that, that train crash. As I say, Batman was known to kill early on in the Golden Age. Now, some people think that's not a legitimate depiction of Batman for Burton to adapt. What I find, though, is that it's, it's mostly Chris Nolan fans who say that. If that describes you, my advice is you'd better think long and fucking hard before making that argument. Chris Nolan has said again and again and again that one of his main influences with his version of the Joker was Batman number one, which was a Golden Age comic. Why can't Burton adapt from the Golden Age while Nolan gets a free pass? There's no need for a double standard, people. One will do nicely. So, other stuff. As far as tone and style, you can draw a lot of straight lines between what Tim Burton did with his two Batman films and those early cane and finger issues of Detective Comics and Batman. I guess to put it another way, it's not hard to imagine The Monk or Hugo Strange's Monster Men wandering around the Gotham City that we saw in Batman Returns. Or another gripe a lot of people have with Burton's films is the, the lack of a partnership between Batman and Commissioner Gordon. As best I can tell, though, that whole partnership thing between Gordon and Batman only came about in 1987 with Frank Miller's Year One. In other words, just about the time Burton was starting pre-production on the first film. And I don't think that was necessarily orthodox Batman lore for several years after Year One came out. So my point is that using Gordon mostly for exposition or to advance the plot as Burton did was pretty much in line with how Gordon had been used for decades in the comics. There are instances of Batman and Gordon having something of a friendship with each other, but it, it, it really was Miller who canonized all of that. The Penguin gets picked on a lot too. That's not how he was in the comics. Burton should have made him a crime boss or an arms dealer or something. At the time Burton dove into pre-production on Batman Returns, the Penguin was mostly a silly comic book character that hadn't gotten tons of development. He was a just a funny-looking man in a, in a top hat who committed bird-related crimes. Burton obviously had his work cut out for him in, in developing that into a character who could help carry a film. Still, it's interesting just how much Burton, Burton's Penguin resonates with the version from the comics. It's been understood for years in the comics that the Penguin has a deep affection for 
for high society, the upper crust, the 1%, whatever you want to call it. Those are elements of Batman Returns. The Penguin's parents were obviously aristocrats, and the Penguin eventually agrees to run for mayor. That's more than just a nod to the Adam West TV show, though. It's part and parcel of the character. He wants to be somebody, even if he has to destroy an honest man and, st and steal an election in order to do it. He wants, he wants to be part of the elite. The Penguin's ultimate plan, originally anyway, is to murder Gotham City's firstborn children, but it's interesting that he was willing to put that aside when it looked like he could become enfranchised among Gotham City's well-to-do class. It's only after the Penguin's electoral prospects are completely destroyed that he launches his plan to kill all of the children. So, to put another way, acceptance from high society means more to him even than his revenge. How is that trait not representative of the Penguin from the comics? Now, as, as for making the Penguin a crime boss, isn't that precisely what Burton did? He runs the Red Triangle Circus Gang. Bruce Wayne even calls him a crime boss. But more than that, it was Chuck Dixon who set the Penguin up as a nightclub owner. But that wasn't until years after Batman Returns came out. Burton's under no obligation to adapt comics that hadn't even fucking been published yet. <sighs> anyway, moving on. Catwoman in Batman Returns gets a lot of shit, too. Burton was even more behind the eight ball with her than he had been with the Penguin. Catwoman had three different comic book origins to choose from. First, an amnesiac flight attendant. Second, a battered wife. Or third, a hooker. Can anybody blame Burton for not wanting to directly adapt any of those? Still, the movie version does have a little bit of similarity to the battered wife version. Selina in Batman Returns has been figuratively beaten down by life and especially by her boss. But one near-death experience with paranormal overtones later, and Selina chooses to stop being a victim and to start fighting back. So, in a sense, that's pretty similar to the battered wife character that we saw in the autobiography of Bruce Wayne. Anyway. So, the music. The actual score to the movie is just awesome. Burton, he made a, a different film in Batman Returns than he did the first time around, and Danny Elfman therefore developed and built upon the main title from the first film, and it was just somehow bigger and darker, even than the 1989 score, which is really saying something if you think about it. But Elfman also introduced a shitload of new themes and motifs in the film. The Penguin's theme is dark, 
sad and at times it kind of sounds like a a baby's music box or something like something you'd play to a to a small infant in 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 his crib something his theme figures prominently all throughout the score and it's just fucking cool catwoman doesn't really have a theme so much as a motif a lot of high-pitched meowing strings follow her around from scene to scene but not all the music in the film is score stuff there are some pop songs in there too Susie and the Banshees is one and that song is fine but the rest yeah I could I could do without those but anyway as far as the music is concerned, I'll just say that Danny Elfman, to me, is one of those composers with constantly diminishing returns. He did a lot of really neat and inventive work in the late 80s and the early 90s, but I'm hard-pressed to think of much he's done since then that that's really impressed me, apart from maybe Men in Black, Goodwill Hunting, and a couple of other odds and ends. Now, keep in mind... I am not a film score guy by any stretch of the imagination, so take all of this with as many grains of salt as you see fit. Still, it's worth mentioning that Batman Returns is very operatic, and so the film score is similarly theatrical and operatic. It's just, it's the perfect companion to the film, and I would go so far as to say that without Elfman, this would be a completely different score and thus a completely different film. His contribution here is beyond measure, so thank you, Mr. Elfman. Kudos to you. So, anyway. <sighs> Alright, well, I think that's, that's just about it. What I'm going to do is just play some promos and I'll be right back.
together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no .com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. tomorrow with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men the other the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals for seven decades they've been the world's finest heroes they've teamed on radio comics newspapers animation and more and now they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Up. And away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team 
randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a couple of little bits of feedback to go through. Uh, some email came through. First up, this is an email that came from PQ Ribber. Now, for those of you who don't remember, he's the host of the Overnight Scape Underground podcast, and that's... It, it sort of defies classification. I mean, it's, it, it's really, it's all about not just pop culture, but really fucking obscure pop culture in a great many cases so and <clears throat> actually there are several podcasts on the uh, on the network the overnight scape central or uh, overnight scape underground podcast network there are uh, quite a few uh, things on there now a lot of this stuff is monologue driven and uh, basically what happens is I guess sort of like that podcast Marvel noise basically you have people submitting their own their own content and then he just runs that off in a show uh, or at least one of the shows and so you really do get a uh, decent little bit of variety here so this is all kind of a roundabout way of saying I really fucking highly recommend listening to this this is one of the most original unique and just fucking cool podcasts that I have ever heard this is in the top five so you guys need to be listening to this anyway so PQ River, like I said, wrote in, uh, this is dated February the 22nd. The title of his email is Podcast Comments Here. And um, I think this is a reply, actually, or a follow-up to uh, my Dan Jurgens episode, because PQ River writes, Hey, I think that the receipt for 650 is correct. Taco Bell slash PepsiCo got the other 50 cents in the past when the gift card was purchased. Otherwise, the bookkeeping would never figure correctly if they took in the same 50 cents a second time. Otherhow, a splendid interview, and as usual, a well-assembled show, a satisfied listener. Now, basically what this is all in reference to was at the at the beginning of the uh, Dan Jurgen show, I talked about a, a trip I took to Taco Pizza Bell Hut, where I had... I, I What I ordered was my usual... Um, uh, this is a combi- like a three taco combination with a drink and then two orders of nachos. That's my usual order there. Now, obviously, I mix that up plenty of times, but there's also a decent percentage of the time that when I go to Taco Pizza Bell Hut, that's what I get, you know? So, usually that works out to be precisely $7. No more, no less. $7 exactly on the nose. Now, I had a sort of old gift card in my wallet and I knew for a fact that it had 50 cents on there and so what ended up happen- uh, happening was um, first I paid I-, I put the uh, 50 cents on the gift card and then of course that knocked my total down to 650 and then I paid for that on my check card and then off we went right now the reason I thought that was kind of funny was because this happened basically right as I was putting together the uh, the show that I did with Dan Jurgens regarding Panic in the Sky the response to which, by the way, has actually been really good. I'll, actually, I'll come back to that in just a minute. But the reason I mention it at all, though, is because during this era of Superman comics, 
Anytime somebody rode in a taxi, <clears throat> the fare was always $6.50, no more, no less. And so Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor from from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman uh, podcast, they, for a long while there, made a lot of hay of uh, joking about $6.50 every single time it popped up in, in one of the comics. And so for $6.50 exactly to pop up in this transaction, which was so conveniently timed with the Dan Jurgens interview, I just thought Michael Bailey would get kind of a kick out of that. So it's not that I didn't understand where the math was coming from. I understood exactly where, what, what that was all about. The issue was that I just thought it was kind of funny that uh, the uh, cab fare was basically what I pay for, uh, what, what I ended up paying for this uh, trip to uh, Taco Pizza Bell Hut. So that's pretty much that. Uh, speaking of Panic in the Sky, I've got a little bit more feedback about that, somewhat. Uh, this next email is dated February the 24th. This comes in from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. The title of the email is, Oh Yeah, Something I Love. And uh, Fanboy MS writes, I have to say, I love Panic in the Sky. It's a story I read in the trade and felt it was awesome. The only weird part is Deathstroke being someone Superman at all trusts for this, given he... Um, yeah, before his reformation, and after one of the storylines in the uh, Titans volume, volume 1 makes him someone I'm not sure why the Man of Steel didn't punch him in the face and take him in for his crimes. I'm going to come back to that, actually, in just a minute, fanboy. I must just um, hold the line on that one. But yeah, an awesome story and one deserving praise. And got to agree with you on, it's funny what forms your opinion on the characters and concepts in comics. What you read and when for a first impression plays a big part in it. Also, it can give you one very different opinion, uh, opinion on members of a team that you consider mainstays or big guns or at least characters you'd want to see on a lineup. And again, I'm going to be coming back to that too in just a minute. For me, I got into the Avengers in the middle of the Gatherer storyline and the and the butt end of the Roy Thomas Avengers uh, West Coast. So I consider Black Knight, Crystal, and Hercules, among others, to be not big guns, but characters I'd like to see as part of the Avengers active roster again. War Machine is also cool, and I think brings something to the table as well from that. It also makes me think Hawkeye is a decent Avengers leader. A slight irony is I got that going back from the issue I first got into the West Coast team with, as that was when Scarlet Witch became leader. Now I'm going to put your email on pause here and say that yeah, I actually tend to uh, tend to agree with this. That the na and I think this is really especially true of the '90s that the nature of these teams was to change so much, just over uh, a period of a couple of years. That the book that you start reading, say in 1989, is going to be so far removed from the book that's being published by around 1992, you could fairly well say it's almost a different team and a different concept. I mean, yeah, you know, they may be all fit under the the banner of Justice League, but are these really the same fucking teams? I mean, there's a reason that we have that special demarcation for the Satellite Era Justice League and the Giffen De Mateus Era Justice League and the Dan Jurgens Era Justice League and on and on and on, you know? And I guess in relation to that, 
to your point here, the one that you mentioned specifically was Deathstroke in Panic of the Sky. And basically, Superman didn't take the guy out right there, but instead recruited him to help in the fight against Brainiac. Now, I can kind of half-ass that in, in, in terms of Superman knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Brainiac was coming and he was bringing Warworld with him, right? So, at that exact moment, I think Superman maybe had uh, other things on his mind besides who who did what crime, or, uh, or at least as it goes for Deathstroke, some of the other stuff that he did. So, Superman's... There's, this is really nowhere in the text, and so I'm having to kind of extrapolate things, but basically, you could argue that at that moment, Superman had bigger fish to fry, right? It's not to minimize what Deathstroke did. It's just to say that at that moment, what's more important, taking Deathstroke in for his crimes or saving humanity from an alien invasion? Yeah, that's what I thought. So... That having been said, though, because other things that Deathstroke had done at about that time really weren't part of this story, this was really my first exposure to Deathstroke. And so I didn't really know what else had gone on. And so the first time I read it, to me, he was just... Deathstroke was just another guy in, uh, in Superman's little army here. And I didn't really think too much about him beyond that, but I did kind of have an overall, shall we say, positive impression of the guy, right? And honestly, for everything else with Deathstroke in it that I've ever read, it's really been hard to shake that first impression, you know? Um, and I guess what I mean by that is he's presented very much as, as a hero. Now, the guy's got his personal problems, that much is true, but... He's basically presented as, like I said, just another member of Superman's army, and to me that was very informative at the at the time of the character for me. Alright? And it's it's just it's it's a weird thing because it's so hard to shake that, you know, that, that first impression when you maybe didn't have as good an understanding of it as you might have. And I guess moving on sort of more broadly from that, um really a Panic in the Sky as a story, it it ended up sort of shaping my sensibilities as to what the Justice League ought to be. And by that, I guess what I mean is who ought to be uh, members of the team. All right, Because there's this sort of glory shot from uh, uh, Superman number uh, 65. Wait, was it Superman number 65? Or... No, I'm actually. Wouldn't you know? I'm. I'm sorry. Yeah, Superman number sixty-five. Basically, it's this huge. It's not exactly a two-page splash because that means it occupies two pages, and this doesn't. This, I think. Yeah, here it is. Um, this has Captain Marvel on it. He's on pa panel two, and then panel three, just sort of by himself, and then panel, or sorry, panel one and panel two. He's in there by himself, and then panel three. That is the majority of of the. Uh, of uh, page 18 and then all of page 19. So it's not really a two-page splash, but it's very close. But basically, in this splash, you have all sorts of characters. You've got uh, Thorn, Crimson Fox, Kilowog, Agent Liberty, the Forever People, Rocket Red, Wonder Woman, Valor, 
And there's also bits and pieces of the uh, Giffen de Mateus Justice League and you, in that you have Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, and uh, Batman, right? And so to me, for better or for worse, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle belong on on the Justice League. You know, they are members of uh, of the team. Now, it's not hard for me to get a hold of the concept of um, the Magnificent Seven being unquestioned members of uh, of the team. You know, I mean, maybe you can have like little stories where, you know, such and such character has has a falling out, and, and but of course, you know, you know they're going to come back later, but they're just not around for a while, right? A couple of issues or a couple of stories a year, just whatever it ends up being, right? I'm okay with that, but it's again, Panic in the Sky was sort of my first exposure to a lot of these characters, and so as a result, even though they never actually call this team the Justice League, to me, the Justice League needs to have Guy Gardner, it needs to have Blue Beetle, needs to have Booster Gold, needs to have Batman, and it needs to have Superman. And then also Fire and Ice, too. And I don't want to sound like I'm completely a Giffen de Mateus Justice League era fanboy, because honestly, I'm not. I mean, I've only read a little bit of that stuff. A lot of this comes down to this particular story. And then obviously a few things after, but really it kind of comes to, it comes down to this particular story. And so I guess what I'm driving at here is I very much understand all of that, that your sensibilities of the team are sometimes shaped, I think kind of by sort of the weirdest things. I mean, if your, if your view of, well, let me think, I guess X-Men, right? Your gateway into X-Men was the movie, and then you never really got, like, okay, X2, right? Because I think that's when they had those black uh, jumpsuits in the comics, right? Well, now, for better or for worse, you're going to think of Wolverine not having a mask. You know, the team is going to have the black jumpsuits and all that stuff, and... I don't think that's really representative of the X-Men's look over time. But at the same time, you can't really help what you fell in love with. And so that's just going to be, to you, aesthetically, your sensibilities of the team. So, and yet, I don't think this ever really happens when the Fantastic Four change up their roster. I think to most people, the Fantastic Four is Reed Richards, Sue, Johnny, and Ben. I don't think, I mean, obviously they've had different members over the years, but I don't think the Fantastic Four has ever been really, I don't think people, there's anybody out there who thinks of the team as it has to have Spider-Man or it has to have She-Hulk and everything else is just a pretender to the throne. I honestly don't think anybody feels that way. So I guess this this rule isn't absolute, but anyway, wow, okay. Well, that was interesting. Um, anyway, get back into... Your email, though, it also forms my opinion on Mockingbird's resurrection to be the biggest pile of shit possible. Not because her death being one in the comics, or being one of the first in comics I experienced, but because it was the most completely nonsensical mess Bendis could create. It took another writer for the Hawkeye and Mockingbird limited series to explain that the scroll Mockingbird turned to ashes just before dying for it to even fit. Which, to put your thing back on pause, that is actually ten different kinds of fucked up. I did not know that. 
I just I just kind of took it for granted. Wow, I did not know that. Well, I don't know. That's a DC guy for you though. So I don't know. But this that's actually breaking news. This this and I you know what this is actually kind of an interesting. Actually, I think I want to read this now. I'm look. I'm on the I'm on the record for being a Brian Michael Bendis fan. But at the same time, I'm not one of those people who drinks the Kool-Aid and thinks that everything the guy writes is just this flawless, peerless masterpiece and that we should all worship at the, at the shrine of Bendis. I mean, you know, anybody who's looking for that dude, you got the wrong guy. But, you know, so I'm perfectly willing to admit that the guy, he's capable of writing some clunkers. And it sounds like this was one hell of a clunker. And sometimes, you know what, not because it's enjoyable to read, but... I'm one of those people, I, and I don't want to call it schadenfreude, but I sometimes just like seeing fuck-ups in comics, right? Somebody just completely dropped the nachos in terms of what they were supposed to do with a comic book, and um, I don't know if Armageddon 2000, well, yeah, Armageddon 2001, I guess you could say, is uh, kind of an example of, of somebody just basically turning in something less than... Well, I, let's just put it out there. It was that too, to use your words, a completely fucking nonsensical mess, right? And I can still sort of enjoy it because I remember how exciting it was to pick up those annuals and stuff. And even if the main series itself wasn't maybe everything that it could have been, I don't know, I still, I still enjoy it. And I still kind of enjoyed, you know, the historical aspect of it, that this thing got so completely fucked up by the end that nobody knew what was going on. And so, you know, like I said, I mean, it, on this, actually, I really do trust you, fanboy. I mean, if you're, if you're going to say that this uh, Benda story is just a big pile of shit, dude, I got no reason to doubt you on this, but it, I hope you understand. There's a sense in which that's not completely a turnoff because, or at least because it's Bendis, I mean, if it was anybody else, I actually don't know that I'd feel that way. But because it's Bendis, I can be objective about it. And so, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in checking this out now. But anyway, to get back into your email, we also got the fact that such a quote-unquote important resurrection soon got more or less rendered pointless with Clint getting together with Jessica Drew. So why did Mockingbird come back again? That's a damn good question. I, that I don't know. So... Anyway, to get back into your, your thing, though. Great interview with Dan Jurgens, A writer and artist I've come to have as a favorite and as I've, uh, as I've discovered and read his various works. I, yeah, um, let's talk about that. Uh, basically, I've been a kind of a Dan Jurgens fan now for quite, for quite a while. And really, to me, all roads kind of lead back to Superman in that. You know, um, I'm... I guess when it comes to Dan Jurgens, maybe the best way to put it is I'm a fan of of his Superman work, right? But when I one of the things I wanted to do when I started recording that episode was just just basically do a, a little bit of prep, right, with it ahead of time and really just take a look back at his resume and find out, you know, basically just how much he's done and holy Fucking Moses. I mean, I knew that the guys had a great fucking career. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he, like I said, he did Armageddon 2001, which, you know what, for everything that 
crossover was and wasn't. Some really fucking good annuals came out of that. Some good concepts there. So like I said, even if the main series itself was only good up to a point, which I think is kind of true, it's still... I still think it's a decent story overall. But, you know, you've got Superman. uh, He had a run with Brave and the Bold. He had actually two Booster Gold books. One in the 80s and then another one in the 2000s. And I think he was... I think it started off written by Jeff Johns, and then I think he actually became the writer of it at some point later on. And then more recently, he had the new 52 Firestorm. He actually was on that for quite a while, I think. Uh, he did some kind of work with Infinite Crisis. It was one of uh, one of the crossover. Now, of course, I'm completely fucking blanking on it. Um, he's done Teen Titans. He's uh, He did this tangent um, Superman uh, crossover from... This is just a couple of years ago, but I, I've i never been completely opposed to revisiting the Tangent universe if there's a good reason to do it. Now, truth in advertising, I haven't read Tangent, Superman's Reign, so I don't know. I'm proceeding on the assumption, though, that because I've liked all of his other work, this was probably going to be good, too. But anyway, he also did a Titans Legion um, a miniseries. That's like 1999, I think. And I actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, it, it might have been George Perez, but I'm actually leaning towards Phil Jimenez, who did the, uh, who did inks on that. Now that I think about it. So, anyway, that was a fun little romp. Um, then there's Zero Hour, which I've actually got a series planned for Zero Hour. And again, this isn't anything recorded. Nothing's official. Nothing's set in stone. When I say that I've got it planned, I mean I've got an idea for it. And I've got the basic structure of what the episodes are going to be like. That's it. So I don't even have a synopsis written or anything like that. So I don't have a release date. I don't have jack shit. So uh, this isn't going to be coming anytime soon. So just be be aware of that. But I don't want to get too much into it now. But, you know, I think, I, you know, I regard Zero Hour kind of in the same breath as I do Armageddon 2001 in the sense that a lot of good concepts came out of that. A lot of good tie-ins came out of that. Maybe the main series wasn't as good as it could be. It was a damn sight better than Armageddon 2001. But I still felt... I I can at least admire Zero Hour for what it attempted to do. And try to give characters that didn't really have as clear a history as they might clarify on things like that. Because... My view of it is this. Crisis on Infinite Earths really did two, well, three things. Crisis on Infinite Earths, did, you take it all away, it did three things. It gave Superman a good chance for a reboot. It merged all the different Earths together. And it killed Barry Allen. And honestly, Superman being rebooted, that's a good thing. I think John Byrne did a hell of a job. And certainly, you know, his successors did a hell of a job with the work. Barry Allen dying is one of the most important seminal moments in all of comics. And I, again, there's really nothing I can say here that most of you aren't thinking, but I don't know that bringing Barry Allen back was necessarily a good idea, especially since it seems like one of the main objectives behind that was basically to do Flashpoint. So I really don't think that was worth doing. But as an event, as a concept unto itself, the idea of, of uh, Barry sacrificing himself 
that works for me. But you get into some of the other things. Crisis on Infinite Earths royally butt-fucked the Legion of Superheroes. There's no way around it. That team has never been the same. And I don't think it's an accident that really the Legion hasn't been able to... not They haven't really been able to maintain their own book ever since. You know, and it's kind of funny to think that in trying to save Superman... DC killed one of their golden gooses because Legion was one of the few books that DC had at the time that was that was a presence in the marketplace, that was a big seller, that was successful. And so, yeah, it. but I honestly don't think Legion of Superheroes has really been the same. Now, for me, I don't view that as a bad thing because I've, what little I've, admittedly, what little I've read of the pre-crisis Legion has kind of left me cold. I enjoyed the uh, post-Zero Hour Legion, and I fucking really enjoyed the uh, three-boot Legion of Superheroes that Mark Wade and Barry Kitson did. Loved that. Loved that. And you know what? There was even... There was even a point where I was getting into the unbooted Legion that that Jeff Johns uh, helped launch. And that Paul Levitz ended up sort of retaking, right? And I want to say that that actually lasted for the first couple of months of what I would consider to consider to be that that era of the Legion, or at least that version of the Legion, that era, whatever you want to call it, kind of their prime. And it, I'm sad to say it, it didn't really last all that long. It was probably less than a year. But you had the monthly title, Legion of Superheroes, which told stories that are set basically in the their modern day, I can't say the modern day, but their modern day, basically real time for them, right? Where Adventure Comics was a little bit more early Legion type stuff. And so you had adventures where uh, the Legion of Superheroes and Superboy are running around together and they're having all of these adventures and stuff. It was just, it's fucking cool. It's a lot of fun. And then at some point, somebody decided, you know what, we need to shake things up. And so, like, Adventures, uh, Adventure Comics became, I think that was the one that became this sort of, like, Legion Academy, Legion of Superheroes Academy type of a thing. And they stopped doing the the early days Legion of Superheroes stuff. And honestly, the real-time stories involving the real Legion of Superheroes... I thought it was just fucking mediocre, all right? And then all at once, within... I'm not kidding. It was like two or three months. Like, everything that I liked about the unbooted Legion was undone. And it was just a fucking waste. And so, to bring it all back to my fucking point here, Crisis on Unfitted Earths, when, when all's said and done, it's got a pretty fucking mixed legacy, you know? And I think the one indisputably good thing that came out of it was the John Byrne revamp of, of Superman. But otherwise, I don't think that Crisis on Infinite Earth's longtime legacy ultimately worked to the benefit of the DC Universe. I'll just say that, right? That's not a, necessarily a problem inherent to the story. Because honestly, I mean, the writers and editors, and maybe this is me being a little bit of a Monday morning quarterback, but... The writers and editors of the time, they could have 
done more to work within the parameters of Crisis, right? Legion of Superheroes is a good example. They could have rebooted too. Batman could have had a true page one reboot. And no, I don't consider Batman Year One to be a reboot. On and on and on. And so, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that relate to Crisis aren't really Crisis's problem so much as that it's more to do with, I guess, the 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 creative talent that were doing the books at the time. It was like they didn't know what to do with Crisis. You know, it didn't occur to them, for whatever reason, to reboot. Right. And, again, you can't hang that on Crisis, but, you know, nevertheless, that is where it started. And that's my point in saying that I don't think Crisis necessarily worked to the long-term advantage of the DC Universe. Again, case in point, Earth 2. The Earth 2 characters, I don't think, were necessarily done any favors by Crisis. Now, I mean, yeah, ultimately, I, you, you did get that Justice Society series in... Um, well, like 1991, 1992, around there. Uh, I talked about it before. It was, I want to say it was like my third episode or fourth episode. It was something like that. But it was the uh, Lynn Straczewski, Mike Perobeck, Justice League, or Ju Justice League, Justice Society of America. And that, I thought, was actually really good. But basically, you know, there was a point when DC was, they just didn't fucking know what to do with Power Girl, right? They tried to tried to convince us that she was from Atlantis at one point, I think, and then they just came up with some other just really weird and goofy ideas for her, and honestly, I don't think any of them worked, and to a lesser degree, I think the same can really be said of the Huntress. That character only really makes sense, to me anyway, when she's Batman and Catwoman's daughter, really is what it comes down to, and the idea of she's some mob boss's daughter and all this stuff, I, whatever, I don't really buy that. And look, I mean, I'm not criticizing the idea. I mean, obviously they wanted to have stories that have the Huntress in them. She can't be Batman and Catwoman's daughter. That's not on the table. That's just not an option. So what, so what other idea is there? You know, you have to think of something, right? So I'm not criticizing what was done. I'm criticizing, I guess, the necessity of having to do it. Especially when it comes to the Huntress. So, well, the Huntress and Power Girl. I, like I said, both of those characters, I don't think... Well, like I said, Crisis didn't exactly work to their, to their benefit. So, anyway, so on and on and on. And so, that really cannot be... And this is my point. That really cannot be said of Zero Hour. I think that, <clears throat> really, a lot of Zero Hour's issues kind of come down to the fact that it was a really weird time. And... There's a sense in which that's kind of inexcusable because Zero Hour was sort of a known quantity a year before it happened, right? We all knew that Zero Hour was coming. And why it was that characters weren't, I guess, primed and ready to go for Zero Hour is beyond me, right? For example... <clears throat> It's not exactly crucial to the plot that that Batman be uh, be in this story, right? But it is a major crossover, and so you you kind of need to have Batman there. And more than that, it needs to be specifically Bruce Wayne. And this happened around the time of Night's End, 
that storyline that was coming on or going on and it had actually just come to an end. And so Bruce Wayne had been back as Batman for literally one month. And basically, the impression that I've gotten after the fact is that he would have basically turned right back around and left again after taking down John Paul Valley. But, and then we would have gone straight into the prodigal storyline where uh, Dick Grayson becomes Batman for a while and all that. You know, we would have gone straight into that storyline, except that Zero Hour happened right in, be- right in between those two things, right between Night's End and Prodigal. And so they wanted basically Batman to be in it, and it makes the most sense if Batman is Bruce Wayne. And so that's why all of that happened, right? And it was just, it, it was a weird time for Batman. Zero Hour was. And same thing for Aquaman. I mean, I forget what exactly the deal was there, but I think I think the Zero Hour for Aquaman's participation took place, like, fucking between panels. Like, the motherfucker literally just gets his, his arm or his hand chewed off by Piranha, and then, boom, he's into Zero Hour, right? And it just, it was fucked up, because, again, Zero Hour was a known thing. We readers knew that Zero Hour was coming a year before it actually did. How much longer was it that the creative staff knew what was going on, the creative teams behind all these books. And so why the fuck weren't they better prepared for this? I don't know, all right? I really don't know. All I know is they weren't. And so Zero Hour is kind of a weird story when you read it that certain things are just kind of fucked up. Like, I think there's even a point when someone actually says to Aquaman, dude, are you okay? And he's like, I'm fine, you know? And he didn't, like, he doesn't want to talk about it, right? Which, you know, I can appreciate it. Guy's having a fucking bad day. You would, too, if you just got your hand chewed off. You know, but it's just, it's one of those weird things, you know, why wasn't there better preparation for something like this? I mean, guys, if you give me a year notice on something, I'm going to fucking do it, right? Well, that if I'm getting paid, anyway. Give me a year and give me money, I'll do it, right? It'll be done. Perfect. And so, anyway... And where the fuck was I? Oh, yeah, so zero out, right? Basically, it... That, I think, ultimate. I, I can respect Zero Hour, even if it's not necessarily Dan Jurgens' finest work ever. I can at least respect Zero Hour in the sense that it... I think, I think it did a lot of what it set out to do. It didn't really affect Superman too much at all. At least that's the official party line. My... You know what? Fuck it. I got time. Here's my view of things, right? Basically, what it comes down to is this... Following Zero Hour, Superman, actually really the entire DC Universe did Zero Month, where every single issue of every comic book that came out was Zero. And the idea was that this is your gateway now into that, into that comic, right? So you now have a point of entry and you have an introduction and it's basically supposed to be very friendly to new readers. A jump on point, as Wizard Magazine loved to say, right? And for Superman's Zero Issues, they basically set up the character Kenny Braverman, a.k.a. Conduit. And they were basically positioning him to be a a baddie in Superman uh, comics. Not so much like at that moment, but six months from now. By which I mean six months after those books came out. That's when the chickens would come home to roost with with, uh, Kenny Braverman, right? Now... The way I look at it is that, you know what, Zero Hour actually did affect Superman, and that before Zero Hour, 
Kenny Braverman did not exist in uh, in uh, Superman's history, but because of weird goings on with Zero Hour, he was added in as just one of the weird aberrations caused by Zero Hour. And so that's, you know, no one's ever come right out and said that. In fact, actually, it's actually the opposite. Everybody involved has explicitly denied that Superman was affected by this. But I don't view it that way. And that's, I, I like thinking that, you know, Superman actually was affected by this too, just because, fuck it, I love Superman. But it did, Zero Hour definitely worked to, to the benefit of the Legion of Superheroes. Because basically what it allowed everybody involved to do Say, okay, you know what? Fuck it. We're washing our hands of the old continuity. We can't make that work. We, it's not that we don't like it. We do like it, but we've got to rebuild this thing from the ground up. That stuff is just fucking unworkable now. And so that was really the impetus behind this, the post-zero-hour Legion. Now, we can debate amongst ourselves, you know, the lasting merit of the post-zero-hour Legion. Because I think even Mark Wade at one point said that it kind of came to be too derivative of the original Legion of Superheroes, and that if all they're doing here is basically recapitulating old Legion stories, then why? You know, why are we, why are we here? What, what's this all about? But it does work for me in that, that that became my gateway into the Legion of Superheroes, and so, you know, The fact that a lot of people, not least of which being the talent involved with those books, the fact that a lot of people just aren't really hip to that era of of Legion, well, whatever, but I mean, I think ultimately it was worth doing, if for no other reason than to at least attempt to put together a new reality for the Legion. And my theory really is this. If the three-boot Legion had been introduced post-Zero Hour, right, in 1994. If that version of the Legion had been done in 1994 following Zero Hour, that would be the, le- the version of Legion of Superheroes that's in print to this day. I believe it. And so, I basically feel like, you know, maybe it was just bad time... Oh, fuck it, I, I, I'm rambling here. Um, anyway, I think one of the other changes to come out of Zero Hour was the fact that the identity of Thomas and Martha Wayne's killer, it was now, eh, it was, it was, it was unknown, basically. It, was, it wasn't Joe Chill anymore. They were basically, uh, it was unknown who the killer was. And that's something that I never really had a stake in either way. I kind of like the idea of, of Batman never catching the murderer of uh, his parents. But... I don't really care about that so much either way. Another thing that it did for Batman, and again, I'm going off memory here. So if this was some, if this was actually a uh, change that was wrought elsewhere, forgive me. But I swear to think that it was actually following Zero Hour that Batman was sort of retroactively established as an urban legend. It wasn't completely for sure that he even existed, and. You know, in a weird kind of way, in some ways, that I mean, that works for me if you do Batman as, in his own titles, he's very much divorced from the, the rest of the DC universe, and he maybe appears in other titles and does their thing, 
with them, things like I don't, Justice League or these big crossovers like Zero Hour and stuff. But when he's in his own books, he's mostly removed from the DC universe. And if that's the approach that you take, the idea of, of Batman being this sort of urban myth, that works for me. That works for me. and But it's just... Honestly, I don't know how realistic something... Well, whatever. Um, I'm getting off topic here. I think another thing that came out of this was that also Catwoman... She wasn't a prostitute anymore, but she was just... I think she was just basically poor. She's just from the wrong side of the tracks. But she wasn't a hooker as such. And so there's there's that. Let me... What a... There's some other changes, and wouldn't you know, now I'm just kind of fucking blanking on all of them, but I swear to think there were other changes. Oh yeah, Hawkman. Duh. Probably the most obvious of all. Hawkman finally got <clears throat> a solid foundation. Let's put it that way. Now, maybe the ongoing Hawkman title that spun out of Zero Hour... Again, it's like anything else. Maybe that wasn't everything that it could have been. But I can at least respect it on the grounds that they went into it with an agenda to fix certain things for certain characters. And, by and large, that's what they ended up doing. And it wasn't an, a, a, a case where... Like, take Crisis, for example, right? Where, with Crisis, the idea was to tell, ultimately, I think... Just a really big, just fucking exciting story. Oh, and by the way, we need to accomplish a couple of objectives when we do it. And with Zero Hour, it's a little bit different in the sense that they had specific things in continuity that they wanted to fix. Zero Hour was the means of getting there. And hey, wouldn't you know, it actually plays nicely in with goings-on with Green Lantern. What's not to like? And so, so that... <clears throat> That plays now, whereas with Infinite Crisis, it kind of feels like that was a chance for certain comics creators to put things back the way they should be, you know, and bullshit like that. And that's one of the reasons why <clears throat> Infinite Crisis, it may, it may work better as a story, but I actually hold Zero Hour in higher regard because the idea wasn't, with Zero Hour, the idea wasn't to restore things to, you know... Uh, to the way they should be, their former glory, it was basically to do whatever it was necessary to work to the benefit of the characters. And that doesn't necessarily mean starting over page one as it was with the Legion, right? Yeah, they did that with the Legion, but that didn't mean that was appropriate for everybody. They kept Hawkman's continuity. They jettisoned the Legion's continuity. They didn't apply one-size-fits-all to everybody, right? And anyway, so... And plus, it doesn't hurt that they actually did a reboot with the Legion of Superheroes versus a retcon with Superman, as they did with Infinite Crisis. Man, fuck Infinite Crisis. But anyway. So, my point is, to bring it all back, when I really started looking at Dan Jurgens's resume, I mean, this guy's had one hell of a career this is a, he really did and has i mean he is doing and has done so fucking much for comics especially dc but for comics and i it's one of those things that i didn't 
I guess I didn't fully appreciate until I was prepping for that Dan Jurgens show, and I realized, you know what? I mean, I I'd probably make him feel awkward if I if I actually outright called him sort of you know comic book royalty. But if you look at a lot of the concepts that he came up with, I don't know, from 1985 to about I don't know 1996 around there, right? A lot of the concepts that he came up with are canon DC Universe items. I don't know so much about to this day, but to this day up through the end of, or the beginning of the new 52. After that, fuck if I know. But stuff like Booster Gold and other things that he did that that are in continuity or were in continuity for a really fucking long time. Right? He created Doomsday. He did. He's basically the creative brain trust behind one of the most important Superman stories of anybody's lifetime with Doomsday. The storyline Doomsday, and he he was a uh, he was the uh, cre- uh, main creative poobah behind uh, Justice League of America for a lot of years. Anyway, my point is, the guy just had a fucking amazing career, and if you don't respect that, it's because I'm I can only assume that you haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to your business. I don't know, and so you know I would love to have him. This is all my way of saying that I would just fucking love. To have him back on the show, maybe not to talk <clears throat> about more Superman stuff, maybe to talk though about I don't like Superman's reign, or Teen Titans. I don't know if he actually wants to talk about that, but uh, Teen Titans or um, let me think what else. His, uh, his Booster Gold, right? Both series, the one from the 80s and then the one from the 90s or not 90s, the one from the 2000s, right? And just on and on and on. I mean, this the guy's fucking... He's done so fucking much good work. And... Anyway, it's just... I just would like to have him back on the show at some point. I'm not saying he's, you know, he's going to do it. He may not be willing to do it. Honestly, I may actually, at this point, be kind of fucking tapped out with creator interviews. I mean, I've had... I had a really good experience with... Norm Brayfogel, I had a really good experience with Dan Jurgens, but I had a not very good experience with this with another comic book writer out there. This is a comic book writer I know you've all heard of. I know you have read his comics. I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, a shadow of a doubt, that some of you have read this guy's work. Tried to get him onto the show and I've had easier fucking root canals, really, is what it comes down to. I've had... Okay, there was this... This was like 2000... It was like 2006, I think. What happened was I was sit, I worked from home at the time, right? It was like 2006, and I was sitting at my desk one day, and I just fucking broke a tooth. Broke a tooth, right? And I mean like fucking exposed nerve and everything, Right? And the only thing I could do to keep the pain down was just to swish really, really fucking cold water in my mouth. All right? I mean, look, fuck, I, I was hurt bad. I knew it. I mean, I could fucking barely stay conscious, right? But there was no way I could get into the dentist for, it was a couple of hours, right? And so the pain was manageable as long as I uh, had ice water in my mouth, right? And so, but like I said, I mean, I was, fuck, it hurt bad. I almost... It was all I could do to stay conscious. I almost passed out at my desk 
a couple of times, right? That's how fucking bad this hurt, right? This is some of the most intense pain I've ever felt in my entire life. Dealing with this one particular comic book creator and trying to get him onto my show so I could talk about his fucking work and how much I love it and what a good job I think he did and and, and all of this other stuff. You know, basically, I wouldn't say go so I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, basically kiss ass, but, you know, basically talk about what a fucking great career I think he had, too. And I would love to see more of his work, but the work of his that we do have and there's quite a bit of it. The work of his that we do have, how cool I think it is. But, you know, there was this one particular comic book series that he did that I think is actually fucking definitive. If if nobody were to ever write this comic book, because I don't want to be too specific about it, because I don't want to give away who it is. But if nobody had ever written this comic book ever again after him, that would be fine. Because to me, this his version of that comic book is fucking definitive. Right? No one ever needs to go near it again because he fucking killed it. And basically, I just wanted to kind of have him on the show and sort of celebrate all that and pick pick his brain a little bit about what his creative process was, you know, for this comic book and for the particular storyline that he and I were going to talk about, like that specific storyline and all of this other stuff. And, you know, what he thinks about that character and that storyline later, you know, all of these years later, you know, how does he think his work is held up? And, you know, it's just this fucking guy made things such a pain in my ass. Eventually, I just fucking washed my hands of the episode. I'm not going to fucking do it, all right, is what it comes down to. Fuck it. I mean, it's, it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the amount of bullshit he was trying to put me through to make all this stuff happen, all right? And so, you know, look, Norm Brayfogle was a dream. He made it so easy to get him onto the show. Dan Jurgens, again, same thing. It was so fucking easy to get Dan onto the show. Now, Dan does a lot of con appearances and stuff, so we had to kind of finagle his schedule a little bit. But he bent over fucking backwards to be on this show, right? He didn't have to do that. Dan has work to do. He has a family to take care of. He has cons to go to. I mean, he doesn't fucking need to slum it on my show, right? But he fucking did it anyway because he's a cool guy. You know, so Norm Brayfogle and Dan Jurgens both, basically having them on the show was just a fucking dream, right? But I've tried this shit with other creators, and all they did was basically make it a pain in my ass. And so, anyway, I'm not trying to turn this into a pity party, but basically, fuck, um, okay, anyway. So Dan Jurgens, right, basically he's had this fucking amazing career, and I didn't, I guess I didn't really get a full sense of that until... I actually started doing prep for his guest episode, and I started looking back at this shit. And I'm like, holy shit. I mean, Justice League of America, um, Green Arrow. He's done fucking uh, the New 52 Firestorm. He did, uh, he, uh, he, he was, he actually had his own Spider-Man, but now it wasn't Peter Parker's Spider-Man, it was Ben Riley, but he still, he had a fucking Spider-Man comic book all his own over at Marvel for a time there. Um, he had a great run as writer on Thor, you know, and just on and on and on. I mean, this guy's had just a fucking amazing career. And I, like I said, I guess I hadn't really completely understood that, you know, but man, it was anyway. So yeah, I definitely want to have him back on the show at some point to talk about all this stuff, but I'm not sure I'll ever have much of anybody else. And I may not even have him just because at this point I'm... I don't know. This like this one unnamed comic book creator has just kind of soured me on it. So anyway, well, I think that's it for feedback for this time. I think I'm pretty much tapped out. So just as a reminder, um, 
your feedback, if you want to have your email written, uh, or not written, if you want to have your email read on the show, you can email me at trenusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com, trenusmagnus at gmail.com. And if you, for whatever reason, don't want your email written on the, read on the show, say so. Otherwise, all correspondence that I receive is fair game. If you don't want something read, say so. Otherwise, I'm going to read it. The other thing uh, that I'd really appreciate is iTunes reviews. My current iTunes feed is called Two True Freaks Presents Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. And I'd really appreciate it if uh, some of you could file a positive iTunes reviews because that's going to help me become more visible on iTunes and obviously I'll be I'll be reading those on the sh- on the show as well now <clears throat> I know it's a little bit of a pain in the ass to submit iTunes reviews because you have to log in yeah for well, actually first you have to go you have to open up iTunes and you have to log in you have to search for my feed then you have to uh, you have to find it open it go to the the uh, rating section type in your review all that look, I know it's a pain in the ass, but I just I'd really appreciate it if if you guys could uh, could uh, file some uh, positive iTunes reviews for me. It would really help me out. So otherwise, I think that's it. So bye everybody and I'll see you next week. Okay. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, 
and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.